Hey, Aaron here. Before we get started, I uh, just want to make a pitch for Club Bald Move. Uh, you can find out all about it at club.baldmove.com. Uh, but if you've enjoyed our coverage of Season 1 and Season 2 of True Detective, uh, you'll notice that we didn't have a sponsor for this podcast, and we've gone really light with the you know advertising and prompts for support. But the reality is the only reason that we can do the coverage that we do for all the television shows we do is because we have direct listener support. Uh, it allows us to maintain our independence and uh, do this on a full-time basis uh, and give you the coverage of the, of the television that you enjoy and care about and are passionate about. Joining the club is as low as a dollar a month, and you get a lot of uh, value. Not only are you supporting us, but there's a lot of uh, premium content you get, early access content, special VIP access on forums and, and stuff like that. Again, go to club.baldmove.com to get the full pitch. Uh, thanks to everyone who has supported us. And thank you for everyone that will support us in the future. Thanks for listening to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's True Detective Anthology, brought to you by Bald Move. This conversation covers the season two finale, titled Omega Station. The war was lost, the treaty signed, I was not caught across the line, I was not caught, though many tried. I live among you, well disguised. Ray figures out that Casper's killer was Leonard Osterman, one of the kids from the robbery in 92. Annie and Ray go to his house and find his sister, who says that he's going to kill Holloway at a meeting. While Annie gets Laura out of harm's way, Ray goes to the meeting to stop Leonard from getting killed. It doesn't work, and Ray nearly gets shot by Burris before he can escape. So that's it. True Detective's in the bag, man. What'd you, what'd you think? Of this uh, finale and maybe the season in general. Well, it's hard because like I've spent all day on Reddit watching the. Uh, if you didn't like season two, then you were re- you playing bejeweled on your fucking cell phone. Versus the why can't people admit season two is an abject failure? Crowd throw you know daggers at each other, and I'm like. Yeah. In the middle, like I said, as soon as the show was over, I got on Facebook and I got on the forums and I said. There's a lot of season didn't work, but there's a lot of season that really worked, and I can't escape the feeling that this would have been a really tight four-hour miniseries. Hmm. Okay. And after two or three days of deliberation, I feel like that is right on, that you could have completely eliminated the Paul character, you could have eliminated a lot of the backstories of some of these characters, mm-hmm. and it would have worked, you could have it would have worked a lot better. And I also wonder something I want to talk to you about is, you know, how much of this is like, we know Pizzolatto started with the germ of an idea that this season is going to revolve around the secret occult history of the American railroad in the Southwest. Yeah. Which seems like, okay, right on. That's true detective. That's what I think of as true detective. And there's also this been this thread of, you guys thought that season that true detective was going to be this kind of like dark, grim occult kind of thing with spooky stuff element. And and you guys just weren't paying attention to what Pizzolatto was trying to do. No, fuck you. Season one was that thing. And mm-hmm. Pizzolatto said, that's kind of where he's going to season two. And a lot of the, the track, if you pardon the pun that he was laying down early in season two indicated, you know, I wasn't making that shit up about Molech and the Bohemian Grove and the <laughs> Luna Park stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and the crow's mask and all that. It, and it just, I think at some point he decided, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to go with the Lovecraftian heebie-jeebie stuff. I'm just going to make it straight up political uh, corruption. 
but for whatever reason, he had all these vesticle parts in the plot that he just couldn't jettison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thus, we got this kind of bloated eight and a half hour series. Um, so I don't think it was a. I don't think I wasted my time. I think that episodes six, seven, and eight saved the season. Because yeah, I completely agree. Episodes with that. three, four, and five, I think, are pretty. Um, pretty rough in retrospect that that shootout <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the season didn't have any kind of the, the impact that the, sh- the, the sh- that the similar action sequence in season one did i think after i've seen everything i got to go back and say killing ray in episode two to not kill him in episode three is horseshit and there is no satisfying <laughs> reason to make that fake out worth it that uh-huh. was just pure um, an emotional manipulation yeah yeah i also think that like Man, what if I had gotten the scenes of Ray flipping through the fit photos of him and Chad when they were younger and they were connecting and they it seemed like they were having good times and he was a good father. What if I saw that in episode one or two and then I'm left with their relationship yeah. now and like, my God, look how much this has deteriorated because Ray's let his life run amok. Yeah, I think the the point, the thing I want to say on that point in particular is that would have given us an indication that Ray actually was struggling with this idea of losing his son, whereas it seemed like he was just an all-around asshole who was kind of oblivious to the fact that he was losing his son. Kind of the same way. Except for, you know, his wife was the one taking his son away versus he was the one having problems with the relationship. Right, and that's kind of the same way, like, I want to talk about a non-sequitur, the season one of The Strain, where I had Ephraim... You know, yeah, yeah. trying so hard to hold on to this relationship with the son where he clearly is not the most important thing and you are a detriment to the kid's life. Like, it's self-evident. Yeah, yeah. But there again, I didn't see any of the good times. Like, Jim Carrey's Liar Liar did a much better job <laughs> of showing a father You're right, who, just the claw alone. Yeah! Was that's good all enough you need. to tell us. Like, honestly, uh-huh. if, if they had the salute conceit that they had, if yeah. they had established that in the first word, like, you know... Uh, Chad doesn't know what to make of his dad and his dad doesn't know what to make of Chad, but they've still got this thing, you know, but there was nothing. Yeah. It feels like recontextualizing character motivation or, or character relationships after the fact doesn't work as well as recontextualizing plot points. Right. Which they didn't do, right? Like that's the other side of it. They didn't recontextualize anything in the final episode. It was more just like. Here's what you thought it was, and yep, confirmation. Boom. Yeah, but let's but, keep going and get to the end of this. But bad doing boy. that even in too little, too late in the last episode, it was still surprisingly effective when you know he wasn't able to get that last voicemail to his kid. Oh yeah, like yeah, that I was thought, a real I gut was like, punch. Fuck, that's dark at the end. That was a real gut punch. But I think, man, how much more devastating would it have been if I actually cared coming into this episode about this and didn't think that no Ray, you really need to get out of here because. Yeah. And 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 still there is a little too much too little too late because they had, you know, he had to throw that badge thing while he was playing, you know, role playing games with his friend, which I thought that was a nice touch that Chad's fine. He's not running in the circles of friends that maybe Ray would appreciate. He's not the type of kid that Ray understands, but Ray's got yeah. his nerdy lunch. I mean, I mean, Chad rather Chad is me. And junior high and high school, you know, he's gonna lose. I a wasn't pair a of ginger. I wasn't that so chubby, often. but you know, I got. Mm-hmm. I, I was a weirdo, and I like the role playing games. And uh, he's gonna be fine. I don't the 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 salute and the badge with no context seemed a little silly. Hmm. But no, so that's what I think. It's I think it's um, I I really liked. I continue to really like Frank and Jordan. Yeah. I, um, I don't know how I feel about the the Annie Ray thing. 
kind of like you know soulmates thing that got that they got bolted on. I was, at the I was end. okay with that. Um, Not a big fan of how the women kind of got shunted off hmm. uh, and sh- and and shielded from the action for whatever reasons, good or bad, um, in the final in the final episode. Mm-hmm. But you know, re- Frank going through the desert is pretty effective. Yeah, yeah, I, I really love that scene actually. Uh, I really enjoy Frank and Ray rolling up on that cabin, cleaning house. I thought that mm-hmm. was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. The things that didn't work for me were kind of, I don't, I don't know. I feel like you know the show has been so subtle for so long and has encouraged you to look. If you don't really sit down and think about this and dig into all of the facts in this case, you're gonna be lost. Uh huh. And then for the ending to just go and like blow it all wide open with very very obvious stuff like can you have it both ways can you encourage your audience to really think and then say you know what for the ones of you who don't want to think and somehow have still stuck around eight episodes through all of this muddled bullshit right right. now we're just gonna fucking spell it out this one we are going to drop it on your head like a piano and and if if that isn't enough we're going to handcuff a living witness that can give expository (laughs) testimony and we're going to have the bad guys tell you exactly what they did too yeah like my god there was just so much blatant just outright mistrust of the audience or distrust of the audience yeah. in this final episode, which wasn't present in the other episodes. And I don't get it. Well, that's one of the things that annoys me about the, the Reddit, the extreme, like you weren't paying attention. It's like, well, you can't have it both ways. If it's subtle show, don't tell then the final episode you just tell. I mean, I, I get it that there's the three step reveal. We talk a lot in terms of game of Thrones where it's like, you know, but you, who do you think your audience is at that point? Well, that's what I'm saying. The three step <laughs> reveal can't be, like that hit over your head, like I, I, at least when it's done well. Like I feel you, like it shouldn't have been for this show. No, I, I agree. It didn't fit, and it was kind of like I said when he went into that room, and you know the, that dark room that had the crow's mask and the white moon face mask and, and the, the bullet gun. And I, hey, there's a magnifying God. device that lets us make sure that this is non lethal ammunition. <laughs> I'm like, it's laughable. Well, no, I actually it's like, oh, this is a frame job. Okay. Like this is there's going to be there's going to be one last reveal that is going to be mind blowing, but no. Uh, And then that kid, yeah, the infamous orgy of evidence. And they keep on stacking shit. Like it's not bad enough that what we've seen of Casper, but he ended up like old boy style fucking his own daughter. Okay. Like 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 you have to add that kind of twist to the season. Uh, and. You know, the crow just seemed so crazy. Like, he didn't have any kind of political point. He was just joyriding with Casper because he was... Because he thought it was funny. Yeah. And the hard drive didn't have anything on it. Like... That they found out, yeah. That's like a Silicon Valley plot, man. (laughs) It is. It is, yeah. They're going to get into the SWAT system next. He spilt a giant bottle of tequila on the hard drive and wiped it. But, you know, uh, Holloway's... Why is this thing sticky and smell like... uh, Agave. I now nah, I mean yeah. so yeah. There I we think go. I think there's a lot not to like about how it wrapped up um specifically, but I think if you step back and you kind of give it a bird's eye view, mm-hmm. it looks a little bit better. Um well, I also think that the, and I've seen anecdotal the anecdotal evidence that this m- makes a much better binge. Oh, okay, maybe. That you can, you know, that some of the stuff like Ray being shot doesn't feel as manipulative because you immediately start and see that, you know, 
it wasn't a cliffhanger that you waited a week and and like all these things like you know names you're supposed to remember that stuff becomes easier like i didn't have a problem with that because i'm watching this thing two or three times i'm spending hours reading on the internet so like i never found the plot hard to follow even on a first watch after first watches i was i was a little confused by like oh who who is this burris guy i have i've heard his name but i have no idea who he is but Uh, that kind of stuff in like episode five or whatever but i just again i wonder like instead of so why why Paul? Why was his military mm. background important? Why? So the only place that goes is to Catalyst Enforcement Group, right? But they like, had, that's it, and that's unimportant. But they had police SWAT members working yeah. for them. But I mean that they could have easily like economy of plot would just suggest these police riot cops that are the, the their forefathers the SWAT teams which are already paramilitary mm-hmm. that knocked off this diamond store and are all up in this Vinci architecture they're the security I know like that's, that's what boom, I mean that's, done that's, you don't need Black Mountain yeah why was Paul gay why was Paul I mean I get that like that makes sense like he's this military dude and he's this cop and he's very macho and he can't he, he come to grips with the idea that you know he's got this idea of like he can't be that masculine and gay so I reject that why was his mother a closet pedophile why did he have this 8 mile relationship with his mom why did he have 20 pedophile by the way why did he have $20,000 why did he have the pregnancy with his girl I mean that's like Pizzolato. it seems like that was all about like I've got this theme of parents and children and dysfunctional relationships. Mm. Let's throw another one. But my, I think if he had maybe a writer's room or like was taking notes from HBO, maybe one of those notes is like, Hey, just get rid of Paul. Like you, yeah, you, you I, pointed out the one thing Paul does is he goes into the office and gets the police files that, that, that really yeah. leads them to the and, 1992. And in this particular version of the plot, that is absolutely vital. But that's, However, there could be written a plot that does not require him. Sure, uh, sure. It, with very little effort, I would imagine. Yeah, and then you've got you're now you're down to like a six hour miniseries, which is already a big improvement. <laughs> so I'm wondering if he doesn't, if he wasn't there, in part to try to serve as a counterpoint to maybe Annie, who comes to terms with the things that have happened to her and who she is. Yeah. Um, whereas Paul never did, and so Annie survives, whereas Paul dies. But then you look at Ray, someone who also came to terms with who he was and what he's done, and he dies. So so why the extra counterpoint in Paul? Here's another thing that's frustrating as a guy who really loves the psychosphere is um, – so there's a couple of ways the psychosphere can be relevant. Number one, it could be it's clues for the people that are trying to play True Detective at home – to bust the investigation wide open and you get that pleasure of like, oh, this mm-hmm. is how the plot's unfolding and can I be right? Can I be wrong? Yeah. You know, you're falling into clues. There is one way it can be successful. The other way is it taps in something subconscious that that adds creep and and dread feelings, like the same way that, you know, minor chords make horror movies work. Yeah, the same yeah. reason that like subliminal message stuff, like can, you know, like the stuff they do in, in – uh, uh, in in uh, Fight Club and the stuff they do in like um, the uh, Exorcist can can add that stuff. It just kind of like adds to the creepy feelings. But I feel like it's a failure in both of those counts because none of that stuff that like the Molex stuff. Mm-hmm. You've got this guy, a character is named. You got the Western Book of the Dead. You got a character who's named after this character who wrote this poem about Molek. 
You've got a Luna Park thing where there's this urban legend about these kids being sacrificed to Molech. And then you've got this Bohemian Grove where there's another conspiracy theory that they worship this <laughs> statue of Molech. Uh-huh. There's Molech, Molech, Molech in the first three episodes. None of that paid off. So it's a failure from a I'm trying to be the true detective and I'm a fan and I'm trying to figure this stuff out. But also those so, those are so deep cuts that only the first type of fan – is going to uncover them. So if I'm seeing sure. this picture of a Luna Park entrance of the clown, and I don't even register that that's important to the plot. Okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so it's like, how can it possibly give me any kind of subconscious? Oh, I'm feeling Molech, and, and I don't even know why. And it, it's not part uh, of the. Yeah, so yeah. it's like it fails in both things, and it makes me feel as a person who's a really big fan of the psychosphere, and I think that stuff is fun. I don't feel rewarded for uncovering any of that stuff. In fact, I feel like it built. Yeah, it it doesn't quite work in the way that like the the creepy setting of Louisiana worked, of the swamp, the bayou there. Well, um, that's and, and also the you know this Cajun Mardi Gras stuff that we were talking about in season one. That yeah. on the face of it looks a little creepy when you see sure. those outfits. You're yeah, you're starting to think, oh, well, there's something else weird going on here. Whereas, yeah, you see a picture of Luna Park and you're not sure. Yeah, you're just like, okay, it's a park. Yeah. <laughs> There's unless you know about the urban legend, yeah. unless you know about the Molex stuff, and you can mm-hmm. tie in the Ginsburg poem. It's so yeah, it's troubling. Like, so I have a very hard time setting aside my podcaster uh, style of watching this, right? Like where you you go and you investigate all this stuff, and you've yeah. got all of the plot laid out before you, and you're reading about what people say, mm-hmm. and and trying to say how would an average viewer enjoy this is yeah. almost impossible for me. Right. No, I same same way. And, and that's the trouble, right? Like, the internet, because there's a week between episodes, gets into the minutia of everything here, and they pick it apart to the point where there are only bones left, and those bones are are later revealed in scenes that become meaningless because we already knew it. And so, like, the stuff that they reveal with the, you know, the masks and the bullets and stuff, I I wonder if that has more impact if you're not as into the show as we have to be. Yeah. I... And that the internet is in general. Like, I don't feel like you can you can just... So what was it like if you were a casual fan and you saw the fact that the, yeah. ju- the jewelry store children were... Because we, I mean, that's... We, we, we and just, I use the we, royal we, the we, internet, has kind of uh-huh. blown that wide open last week. But honestly, you know, that was something Erica being connected with something we theorized, theorized back in episode three. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, the set photographer, that was prime suspect, uh, you know, number one for many, many weeks. And yeah. I, I feel like if you're not following that, that maybe that's like a what the fuck like yeah, surprising and like oh, and also oh, that gi- guy did it. I'll give you another we, one. We the got, mayor's yeah. daughter it never went anywhere. Never went anywhere. <laughs> and I don't uh-huh. know. Like this is kind of like uh, Marty's Game. daughter stuff again. Like I guess. I mean, there were some clues that Annie got from her about Casper and her mother and Chasani. And but like, even they they mentioned her this this episode when the his Russian wife's like her, you know his daughter's just as crazy as his ex wife and I'm like yeah. okay like is that going anywhere? It didn't go anywhere. It's a it's kind of a dead end and I don't know whether this is something that Pizzolatto intentionally does to try to like I'm gonna throw in some yeah. of this Molex stuff and some of this other stuff so like it's hit or miss. So like you know yes I have to draw clues. 
uh, that these two children are going to be involved. It's going to be clear, but I don't want anyone to be able to take it to the bank because I throw in so many false positives. Mm -hmm. That's something that I tried to argue last season. Like, well, maybe that makes the true detective game more authentic because not every smoking gun you find or not every piece of clue that you, you pick up off the ground is relevant to the investigation. Some of it is a red herring. After two mm-hmm. seasons of it, I don't know. It doesn't feel fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm kind of okay with that. Because we were speculating for a while that, you know, she's got to have something more to do with this case. Maybe she is, in fact, the raven. Um, it definitely it was effective in throwing some people off the trail. Yeah. No, the, I thought the Raven conspiracy was less interesting. The fact it wasn't much of a conspiracy at all as a brother and sister, full yeah. stop. Yeah, it had really nothing to do with the current and, and they, sex parties and Catalyst nope. and none of that. No, nope. and was, they didn't have any larger societal point that they wanted to make. It was just yeah, a it was all about story. a robbery in '92. Yeah. Uh, and so I like that's what I mean when I say step back and look at this from a bigger picture. Maybe it makes more sense. Like if you say, OK, so here's 25 years of corruption from yeah. from 92 to 2015, 23 years, uh, all undone by this one, this one dude, essentially. Right. Like his sister was kind of in on it, but not to the extent that he was. Yeah. Um, she got him a job. Right. Uh, she was you know, but she wasn't Casper, on board with... But she didn't want to kill anybody, I don't think. No. Uh, that sort of thing. So so essentially, this massive crime organization is almost completely, not completely unraveled by this, but it's that one little detail of leaving these kids alive, not finding these kids in the shop that kind of 25 years later comes back to haunt them. And I think that's kind of interesting, but is it interesting enough to make the journey worth taking? And I... My answer is probably no. I can't believe you're not making the Scooby-Doo joke. I know. I've been trying. Especially I, with the masks and, like, I, if it wasn't for those damn kids. Those, I, I get meddling. it. It's like I'm waiting. I'm like, you go, okay, you're setting, setting. Spike it, Jim. Spike it. You're refusing to spike it. Yeah. They would have gotten those, away with it, yes. They would have gotten away if it wasn't for those meddling kids. <laughs> 100%. It is a Scooby-Doo episode. Yeah. But, like, you know, the snuff room, again, the why he spared Ray's life doesn't really makes sense to me especially given this guy's mental state so he he goes to the house he's waiting for burris or holloway to show up essentially Mm -hmm. and instead one of their detectives shows up and he just shoots them takes a hard drive and leaves why i guess so why wouldn't he take him and try to interrogate him or just kill him or yeah so i've i was reading around and people were talking about this and it was a lot of a lot of assumptions and a lot of just like kind of inferring motives and things. So we know that the guy wants to get revenge on the people who killed his parents, right? So over the decades, you assume that maybe he has figured out exactly who it is and that he's not out to kill anybody else. He just wants to kill these people. So when Ray shows up, he decides not to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you combine that with the idea that, you know, he tortured and actually he didn't mean to kill Casper. He just got carried away. Uh, with with that idea, with the rubber bullets and, you know, the acid in the eyes, you think that whoever is going to show up at that house, he wants to get information from? I mean, something. Then I can see, but it still seems like a coincidence that maybe they're there at the same time. Because well, I, he takes I, the drive and bounces after that instead of, I don't know, doing Still waiting. Else. 
Yeah. And maybe he did. Maybe he continued and we just didn't see that. And he just saw the cops show up and then he's pieced out. But, um, you know, there again, like, you know, this stuff with Antigone and Athena and Oedipus, like that culminated in the Casper. Like, you know, he's fucking his daughter or she's fucking yeah. his father and without one of their knowledge. I mean, that's kind of a stretch. And the Greek tragedy aspect of like, you know, Ray couldn't let go of his son and that's why he didn't go, get away, except for I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, and Frank's yeah, pride we need gets to debate, in the way. We need to debate how how Ray got it, like how they got on to Ray. Well, first of all, because I have, I have some assumptions I made. The puddle and the LED. Oh my god, is really <laughs> really bad for my perspective. It's only there for television. I know, but it's like that is we. That's some shit that used to go on in like '80s television. Like yeah. I feel like nowadays you don't. We're sophisticated enough uh-huh. that we're not you know having red LEDs flash because like let's say let's say it's nighttime. Yeah. He's walking up to his car. Why the hell do I have, like, you know, a, an underkit body light thing going <laughs> <Yeah>. on here? <laughs> My exhaust is flashing. Yeah. What the fuck? Uh, yeah, and that puddle, like, the rest of the street's dry. There's just a puddle there. Come on, there are no puddles in California. And in fact, I thought... I know that. I thought that that was the... He, <laughs> they cut his fuel lines and they planted a bomb that was going to explode. Uh-huh. Because that would have made a hell of a lot more sense. And then he was onto it, and the reason he was standing in the street is deciding what his next move is. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's true, but it's a transponder. Yeah, no. With a fucking light on it. Right. Uh, and, and so... So I think what happened with Frank, or with Ray, I'm sorry... Is they're they're on to him when he goes to the school. I don't think they're on to him before. Now Which, I can see some other arguments that sure, we'll, yeah. we'll talk about. But I think that that scene of them driving up is them having spotted him going to the school. Yes, I agree. Because they're staking out his kid, uh, and they're planting that transponder while he's at the fence saluting his kid. That seems like a hail mary, but it does fit in with the fatal flaw of a Greek hero preventing them from getting away. Like I, I think so, yeah. So like I, I feel like that that is problematic just because that's such a you know again staking out this kid's school in the hopes that Ray will make some kind of last minute contact before he flees the country is is reaching. But well, I from guess, their perspective, if they have no other leads, family members are a good place to start. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm sure um, they've got somebody on his house. Yeah, like if he comes back to his house, they sure want to know. Now, Frank. I don't have as nearly as big. I think his cl- plot line is fairly clean. My biggest criticism yeah. with them is that the scene where they're saying, baby, you got to leave. I'm not leaving you. Baby, you got to. That just lasted way too fucking long. It did. Yeah. Like, I get it. You have written yourself to <laughs> the Jordan is such a strong character that she's not going to let this fight go easily. Uh-huh. But you got to make a happy medium between, okay, the audience is satisfied that Jordan has put up a sufficient fight. Uh yeah, and it took some convincing. It did, you know. She, and, and I thought the writing at the end, where they're both telling each other, essentially, kind of. I mean, I think I think we're supposed to understand that they didn't really believe. Yeah, you know, Frank didn't really Making believe the story. He'd be get out of it, and that she didn't really believe that she'd see him again. But they had this story. Yeah, and they'll always have that story. That's the the idea they can keep in their head, I guess. And and the Mexicans jumping him that felt very realistic because I feel like that the um, I've been calling them the Turks, but they're also they're actually Armenians. It's yeah, probably like a huge racial insult sure. to call Armenians because I'm pretty sure they have some kind of centuries old blood feud. Probably. Anyway, 
the fact that they sold him out to the Mexicans, that's fine. That seems, I don't have a problem with that. That seems like something they would do. Uh, like go yeah. with the million, you know, take the million dollars as a sure thing that you split with the Mexicans versus Frank's maybe half a million. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, f- the fact that that is the other shoe to drop. Frank was trying to fuck the Russians and he could forgot about the Mexicans. And my yep. big question is, would f- so Frank's in the middle of the desert. Maybe he doesn't walk out of there alive because the desert is not an easy thing to just walk out of, regardless of whether you're losing blood. I agree. Yeah. Like, you know, you can die in a day or two of walking in the desert because there's no water and you need water to live. But do you think that he has a chance if he just keeps his fucking mouth shut? Before they go after his suit? It yeah, I do. It seemed like they were just going to content to leave him in the desert. I think so. So Now, now it's interesting because they've dug a grave there. And I, I think the get-out-of-jail card he had was that million dollars. They sure. didn't expect that. And they're like, okay, fine. This does make up for the clubs. You, yeah. can, you can leave here with your life and, and get the fuck out like you were going to. Yeah. But yeah, once once he punches that guy, why, why do you think he punches the guy? Well, once he opened his mouth, uh, which was all about pride, there I think there's two reasons. One, that's just who Frank is. Like mm-hmm. he, I'm not going to give you my goddamn suit. Yeah, he's, uh, he's like I didn't wear a suit till I was 38. I've earned this suit. You also, know? I like, think he realized that he overplayed, and now I think the Mexicans were going to kill him regardless. But also, yeah. he had the diamonds in the suit. Yes, yes. That's, so, that's a huge thing, right? Like, right. this million dollars, okay, that's one thing. Now, if he gives up this suit, which, you know, I, I think it's a little contrived. I think it's a little contrived for the guy to suddenly be like, I like your suit, when that's the thing that he has to actually have to get out of this with anything. See, I don't think it's contrived. I think it's like, we left, we're leaving you in the desert intentionally as kind of like a soft death sentence. Uh-huh. Now, I want your suit. Because, but why does he want a suit? Because it doesn't fit him. No, it's for the fact that it's exposure. Like that's that's essentially like, hey, here's a canteen. Oh, you're going to mouth off to us? Take the canteen back. You're going to keep mouthing off to us? We're going to take your suit. Like you say one more thing, we're going to slit yeah. your throat. I don't know. I still think it's a little contrived. Um, but okay. But the thing is, you know, if he gives up that suit at that moment, he has done all of this for nothing, and he's right back to where he started. The thing that he could not do, and the reason he had to go kill Osip and take that money in the first place. Well, see, that's the uh, that's so, the bitter irony of that character is that if he had just left with a hundred thousand dollars sure. and Jordan, then he, you know, Jordan would would be in Venezuela or wherever they're at with a hundred thousand dollars and her husband. Yeah. You know, and maybe Ray makes it out, too, because not every, yeah. you know, because the clubs didn't get burnt down. The Mexicans take over, or at least they have a beef with the Russians instead. Like so mm-hmm. many things happen. And that's very Greek tragedy, tragedy, too. I like that. And I like his walk through the desert. I mean, there's if yeah, you want to listen to a hater podcast, cool. listen to Seppenwall and Feinberg. They are just <laughs> they're so far over it that they start just saying silly stuff. Like at one point, Seppenwall is like, this guy made fun of my calling him Larry Bird. Like, that's such an insult. I'm like, Einstein is an insult with the right context, man. Yeah. There's yeah. nothing wrong with being compared mentally to Einstein. But if you're a gawky, skinny white kid and you're being yeah. menaced by a bunch of black toughs, then Larry Bird is an insult under that context. Definitely. Uh, they're not saying you're good at basketball. No, I can tell no, you they're that. not. No, they're not. They're calling you a, a, a dumb hick. Uh-huh. So I, the, so I mean, and, and that was tough for me to listen to because, like, 
they're just ignoring everything. Like, Sepinwall saying Vince Vaughn's terrible. Vince Vaughn's not terrible. No, Vince Vaughn is outstanding in this series. Like, I, and, and they were both scornfully. It's like, oh, he was hoping for his, you know, Vaughnissance, and he's not going to get it. And I'm like, I don't know, man. If I'm, I, I, to me, Vince Vaughn was just kind of like a frat bro, frat, frat yep. boy, uh, you know, just comic relief, wedding crasher, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I see him in a different light after these final f- three, four episodes. And he had some bad dialogue shoved in his mouth. Early, that, on, early on, yeah. That, yeah, early on wasn't hitting for me, but later on, um, as things kind of settled down a little bit more, I I think he knocked it out of the park as far as delivering some emotional impact that I didn't know he had inside him. Well, frankly. that's the other thing is that I feel like those lines might have hit better had the stakes been higher at the time. Like when he Maybe. was when he's delivered yeah. those lines while he's rolling tough against a real estate developer and an apartment manager, it's like, <laughs> what the fuck? Uh-huh. But when he's saying that stuff to like Osip and the Armenians and the Mexicans, it works better because that's you know, it works better as as gangster smack, I think. So maybe I still think there's a lot of just really shitty dialogue. Well, and there the again, there if this was a four episode miniseries, you wouldn't have seen six scenes of, of Frank doing a small time hustle. That's, That's the other true. things yeah. like um, his whole attempt to re up into this railroad deal was ultimately irrelevant. They could have cut all that stuff out and just got to the chase with him trying to fuck over Osip. With him being pushed out. Yeah, like you just just get on with that. And the heist against Osip was legitimately entertaining. The other stuff was the small stake stuff that was ultimately meaningless was not. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough for me to say what I wouldn't wouldn't remove. Um, and sometimes it wasn't, I don't want to, like this thing with nails, or again, if this was earlier in the season, that would have been a much bigger impact. Uh, because finding out that nails, his back, his origin story well along in the final finale episode, it's like, okay. I mean, like, I, I mostly agree with this idea that you could rip chunks out and that it could be shorter and some of it wasn't useful. But I I also think, like I said, if you step back and you look at the larger picture and that's what you're going for, if that's the vision that Pizzolatto has in his head, I can see where he would want a lot of pieces um, in play. And I I think that worked fairly well except for some of it just didn't come together as as well as it should and as meaningfully as it should on a microcosm scale. Well, we were talking about this earlier this morning, and you know we saw people like throwing around terms like messy and sloppy, and that didn't feel right. Yeah, but you said rushed, and I think that yeah, yeah. that's dead on. Like having to turn this story around in like nine months or whatever. Yeah, uh, I think he could have used more time. And with this anthology, mm-hmm. like maybe. Maybe for season three, you go away for 18 months or two years. Maybe you pull a Sopranos or a Curb Your Enthusiasm and mm-hmm. wait until your ideas are fully baked and maybe get some collaborators you trust. We need a writer's strike. That's what we need. <laughs> it's the only thing to save season three is a writer's strike. Uh, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, you don't have you don't have actors under contract. You don't have big expensive sets that are, you know, are taking up lot space or might get destroyed by a hurricane like Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Everything is a self-contained thing, so go away, polish that until it is really, really good, and then come back. I'm on board with that idea. And I also, don't think there needs to be, a, you know, July next year, no. season three, True Detective. And also, I think that 
he is a little too reactionary. Like, oh, you don't mm-hmm. think I have strong female characters? Oh, you think I'm relaying too much in bait and switch occult <laughs> stuff? Well, you know, I sympathize with him there. As no, someone I, who puts their work out in the public, it's sphere, hard. It's tough not to take that criticism to heart. It but, is. It is hard to stay the course, but I think yeah. you got to because you know the 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 reason True Detective season one worked is because it was a you just had the two characters and everything mattered. Yeah. Uh, whereas now you got so many characters with so many things that like, you know, even Annie, like it's her history of abuse was interesting, mm-hmm. but I don't know what it had to do with the plot. Like, I really like that. Like it's fucked up pillow talk. Uh, Hey, let's talk about this time. I was molested. Hey, let me talk about this time. I murdered <laughs> my, the rapist is the wrong guy. Uh-huh. But I actually thought it was really kind of sophisticated the way that she's grappling with these that, yes. that I've it seems consistent with a lot of tales of childhood abuse that, you know, do you have a lot of mixed feelings about it and without the kind of therapy or counseling to kind of guide you through those and make you understand that those are normal, that you just kind of feel sick and wrong and conflicted this whole time. And sure, maybe you just repress that. it all and you never deal with it. Yeah. That stuff felt kind of real. And I, and I, I thought that was really good and interesting. And I thought Annie's character as a whole was good and interesting, but stuff with the dad and the pineapple Institute, the fact that that connected back to Chasani, none of that really mattered to the actual interesting parts of the plot. Yeah, I'm trying to see where her storyline, her character development did connect into the plot, and it's tough. Like, is there something about, you know, her tough exterior and her attitude that made her well-suited for this case? I mean, not not giving up, uh, just kind of being a little more stoic in the face of danger. Yeah. I mean, those were all things that were embodied by Paul as well, but... But there again, you've got this thing where it's like, well, this, this season's about relationships between parents and children. Um, and so Annie needs this thing with her dad. But I think it would work better if the stuff with her dad connected somehow more to the main plot. Other than him being like, mm-hmm. yo, yeah. I rejected my dad's gruffness and that made me be this free-flowing libertine which directly enabled you to be <laughs> preyed upon. Uh-huh. Which that's fine too, but then what the fuck is Pitler doing there? And the Chisani, Hitler, uh, he was an enabler. He, you know, I, I, but you know what I'm saying? It's like either connect it or maybe not have it. It's like otherwise, you just got Yoda running around with Chewbacca. Like, yeah, I think the biggest problem I have is that this, you know, all of the shit we saw from episode one through five had nothing to do with the actual what was really happening plot. Like, I mean, because I define the plot as a revenge story, right? I mean. Yeah, you can you can expand it to a larger corruption, but the core of the plot is that revenge of these yeah. kids who were who had their parents killed in a robbery in ninety two and are out for revenge. Yeah. All of that other stuff just barely intersects with that plot. Barely. Yeah. So I I don't know. And and then it's even like you get one step removed when you talk about Frank, right? Mm-hmm. Even from the barely connecting plot that we already have. Well, the other thing is what about Scarface girl, uh Felicia? Her relationship with Ray, like there was so many significant looks between her and Annie. I'm like, is she going to like <laughs> slit her throat and throw her overboard? Like but that really didn't go anywhere either. Yeah. Um, she she was a device to get them out of the country in the end. That's, that's really it. it. Yeah. She was the, she had the coyote room ready uh-huh. to go in the black rose and, and all that. Which yeah. we knew nothing about until the finale. Like, Which, you know, that's fine. But 
Yeah. I guess. But like the way they handle that in Breaking Bad feels so much better to me is that it's mentioned and you realize this is a possibility and is the character going yes. to take it? Will When will they need it? Will it be there when they need it? Those are essential questions throughout that series that are much more compelling to me than, oh, and by the way, we have this coyote connection. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah, no. And the fact that I think there's a little bit of playing fast and loose about what is Ray and Frank good guys or are they bad guys? And I think that's okay. something Pizzolatto it, likes to ask. Like these yes, are actually shades. These are actually shades of gray. But to me, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of I don't believe a man like Ray necessarily exists. Like someone that's going to just beat the piss out of some kid's father with brass knuckles one moment and then be the crooked heart cop with the heart of gold at the other. He sobered up, you know? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I think he, he did have a turning point. Um, and, and I think it was, you know, with his wife threatening to take his kid out of the picture completely. Yeah. Um, it, it, it brought him around and it changed him uh, kind of at his core. And I, I guess I kind of like that. And I, I really do like the relationship between Annie and Ray, even though it's a little hard to define exactly why that relationship exists. Um, it's clear that, yes, they both have these things that they're dealing with in the past, and they're both broken in a certain way, and they're coming to terms kind of at the same time and in each other's presence. Yeah. And that connects them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I kind of like that. Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track Where the viaduct looms like a bird of doom as a ship and crap where secrets lie in the border fires and the humming wires yeah man you know you're never coming back past the square past the bridge past the mills past the stacks on a gathering storm comes a tall handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand Frank convinces Jordan to leave for Venezuela without him by promising to meet her there after he takes care of Osip and McCandless. After meeting up with Ray, the two of them do just that. However, neither of them are able to make a clean getaway. Frank is taken to the desert, where he's stabbed and killed, and Ray stops to see his kid one last time, which allows Burris to track him into the woods where he's also killed. A year later, Annie, Jordan, and Nails are doing their best to blow the case open from Venezuela. I thought Ray's last voice recording to his son could have potentially recontextualized how Chad (laughs) views himself and his father. Yeah. Like, you know what? You're not the fat pussy. You're actually the brave one. If everyone in life was, was, was like you, we would have a lot less problems. If, and if everyone was like me, this planet would be a burning cinder. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he wasn't able to get that out is this t- another time is the flat circle is Chad going to grow up with like a Vince Vaughn type of character and he's going to have this massive chip on his shoulder and he's not going to be able to form emotional relationships with people and he's going to be the next generation of gangster is it this the be. birth of the kingpin it could be it could be <laughs> uh, I, I I mean again that scene could have hmm. been a lot more of effective if we had a better grasp of Ray and Chad's relationship and why we should care and what these stakes were as yeah, it was. I mean, I'm surprised. I actually am very surprised it was as effective as it was. 
Yeah. Just like I was genuinely surprised how effective it was that, uh, you know, Frank dies in the desert after, mm-hmm. you know, like I thought that was a great scene when he f- sees his wife at that long, at, at, yeah. at, 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 after going through the tunnel of douchebags. <laughs> and then the way he gave that performance when she's like, oh, babe, you stopped moving forward a long time ago. And he and looks back. Yeah. I, the reveal on that is awesome. I really like that, and that, and I'm I'm actually really glad that he went with the big twist with Jordan is that she's just a ride or die woman who loves her husband, yeah, unconditionally. Yeah, like, kind of a shock. That's actually <laughs> an effective twist, and I I, I really uh, applaud it. Um, and I, I got to applaud Vince Vaughn's performance in that scene, man. Yeah, I no, mean, he, like. The way that when he, when he sees Jordan, he's like limping and struggling, and, and then, then he just kind of slips, you know, slowly into this, you know, the the back. way that they met, right? Like you can yeah. tell that this is how he acted when he was hitting on her for the first time. And that, and, yeah, he's his breathing's not labored. Yeah. he's got to strut back, and it's just seamless. And it and that's really when he knew well he was acted. Dead. That's when yes. he knew he's dead. And I think that is in fact when he fell over, and, right? And, and I thought that was another gut punch. The fact that. Frank dies thinking that he made it to his wife, but then no, he's got to realize that he failed. Yeah, um, yeah, that that worked. Right. I thought it was actually surprising. And usually, I'm like rolling my eyes so hard when you've got, you know, Ray dying, interspersed with Annie, like kind of like leaning on the boat for support, Obi Wan Kenobi style. Like, yeah. oh, you know, I feel these, these as if, uh, you know, a, <laughs> a violent- thousand alcoholics just cried out. <laughs> As if you know, a thousand mustaches <laughs> just cried out. Um, but I thought, you know, the way they cut it is just like it's not a psychic connection so much as it was, although they went that with with Paul's girlfriend, as so much as it was just realizing that, yeah, I've lost this thing and what it might have been. And yeah, and her look kind of back at the land. What do you think about there? her being pregnant? Uh, like Ray's has got the super sperm. Y- you know what? I kind of like that for Jordan a little bit better than I do. For Annie, because I felt like they were the parents of this child at the end. Like Annie and Jordan were, you know, the caretakers uh, of this child, and that that is something that Jordan wanted. And maybe, like, I know, I yes, it's not a replacement for what could have been Frank's child, right? But yeah. but it's something. It's something being a parent to a child, and just kind of like I, I left season one thinking, man, I really want to see the story of Rust and Marty's, you know, private investigation agency specializing on abused children and missing children. Uh-huh. I really want to see this like awesome mashup of Cagney and Lacey and the A Team. Like, if you're All a right. woman and you're in trouble and you can find them, <laughs> and then nails is. Is in the back doing his thing. And yeah, Nails is kind of like he's the Mister T in the you know he's the B A Baracus in, in that in that story. He's the enforcer, but there. Uh, well, of course, Annie doesn't need it. She's her own kind of enforcer. But yeah, it's true. I thought it'd be cool, and yeah, I did like the fact that they were an unconventional family. Yeah, but you know Ray's ability to father illegitimate children are just is is just amazing, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I'm surprised Danny didn't dye her hair red with all the red hair. Like, and that's like it's like that the Ray's whole thing with his Chad is like a riddle wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in an enigma. It's like he's a he fathered a legitimate, illegitimate, legitimate child, <laughs> <laughs> legitimately illegitimate, legitimate child. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, what his genetic code just wrapped up and folded in on itself. That's why he turned out redheaded. <laughs> he broke that's the how genetic. That happens, he yeah. broke the genetic barrier. <laughs> oh God. 
The uh, redheads can send their emails to a dot <laughs> Uh So let's talk about this aha moment for a second, because people be, seem to be going apeshit over this. Uh, this aha moment where Ray realizes that Lenny is the killer. Okay. Um, I want to, I want to kind of compare this to season one's aha moment, which was the green paint on the house, um, which Marty had. I don't think you can compare him. Well, that's what I mean to do. Okay. I'm not saying like there's no them favorably. Yeah, yeah, I'm just can. saying. I'm just saying how, that does. So you think that season one works and season two doesn't? Yes. That seems to be the popular opinion. Yes. Why do you think that? I'm curious. I felt, I guess I felt more organic. Like, you know, Rust is sitting there and he's telling Woody, we got to reboot our minds. We got to look at all this with fresh eyes. We've got to come into this like we're green, which he happened to be looking at the picture of the house. And yeah. it like it's like one of those bolt in the blue moments that also crucially did not lead them right to uh, what what <laughs> children. Er- yeah, they were going to that house to investigate his father who had the work order. This was a this was generating a lead. This was not the end game. Yeah. Whereas Ray just like boom here it is. And the way you know it was it led right into that Raven mask room with the bullets. Which and- I, that, I mean I guess now that I'm saying it that does. Well, that, that's not what happens in season one. In season one, they go to the house. They yes. ask the lady, oh, do you remember, like, who might have done your house? And do you have the tax records for it? And they go, oh, yeah, let's look up the tax records. Oh, it's a Tuttle thing. Yes. So then they go investigate, and they, they find this other house. Again, it was a Where the business lead. was run out of. Yeah. It, it wasn't the final piece in the puzzle that just everything yeah. came together. I agree. It felt much more organic. Um, this was just like, I see this picture of this kid that doesn't bear an obvious resemblance to this other guy. Like, again, I think these kids are much better represented by the mayor's kids. And maybe... Oh, yeah. Maybe Pizzolatto intended that as another red airing. But, um, no, it felt a little bit too too just so for me. Yeah. In a way that I didn't think season one did. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. This felt like a no-duh moment, honestly, because we already kind of figured all this stuff out, too. Yeah. So like that's another layer on top of it is when Reddit gets a hold of this and you know two weeks in advance that this is the outcome. Yeah. Hmm. Uh what do you think about the scene of in season in episode three where his dad's at the bar in the Conway Twitty Hell bar and yeah. he's talking about son, you're in the big trees and there's men chasing you and you 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 tried to get away but you're not that fast and they they shoot they cut you to pieces son that's not they foreshadowing did. that's just a prof- that's a prophecy yeah which i was willing to entertain with like you know the occult in the air mm-hmm. um but I, you know just like like some of the stuff i i tried to retcon in season 1 where um you know the um uh Reggie Ledoux was talking like a lot of right right on stuff about Rust and being a little priest and all that but I'm like okay well if this cult you know it's a self-fulfilling prophecy they find they stage a dead body the two detectives that are investigating it they know about them and they recognize them and they're talking about how you know this is just weaving just like David Kresh said that the ATF was the antichrist like okay this is how this is going down sure 
I don't see like this is just an internal like Ray predicted he had a, a, a right on death premonition and I don't know how that yeah. fits in this universe. I, I'm with you. That felt a little awkward. You need a little bit of Ubi Doo mm-hmm. nonsense to make that work. If it's just a straightforward tale of corruption, then why was that interesting or or I mean it was when like when did that happen? Did that happen after some kind of drug fueled binge? No, he, he got was shot. On? He was it was he's a near oh, death. That's right. Yeah, but it yeah. was not even a near death experience. He just blacked out from pain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to reconcile like that with the idea that, you know, Russ Cole is somehow mainlining the truths of the universe and like he's he's seeing all these things and I see Russ I, never right. had a right season, on premonition. No, 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 he didn't, certainly. Um, but season one had a lot more of that stuff in it, too. Whereas you're right, this is just kind of out of nowhere. And it's really the only instance I can think of in this season where anything like that happens. I just feel like if Pizzolatto wants to run away from the cult stuff, that's fine. Because, like, I didn't need any cult in The Wire or Breaking Bad mm-hmm. or, well, Fargo had a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't need any, I didn't need any of that to enjoy it and find it gripping. Um, so if you're going to do that, then 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 do it. Yeah. Don't put some of this Ubi Doo nonsense and some of this Molex stuff. Just just don't don't do that to us. I, I'm with you, man. Like it's like <laughs> I feel like he he took the criticism from season one of like we thought this is going to be Lovecraftian and where are our tentacles and our bat wings and our squid faces and he's <laughs> like oh well, I'm gonna I'm 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 going to fuck you even harder on that. Because yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a raven mask in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna put a bunch of weird stuff creepy. and have it even pay pay off even less. Because there was still yeah. there was still a cult in you know, there was still a underworld and mysterious occult thing. It's all you can explain scientifically. But in season one there were occultists that did believe stuff yeah. and mm-hmm. paranormal things and there was that was an interesting angle. Whereas this none of that stuff went anywhere. Yeah. And I feel like a reasonable person four episodes in could have expected that, ah, Pizzolatto's saying this, but he's actually doing this other thing. And hmm. I don't know. Is that a valid criticism? Uh, I'm not sure. Cause, so that ties I into, like... around. That's... Yeah, I mean, that ties into the general feeling that people have, like, well, you were expecting season one, and when you got season two, you were dissatisfied because it wasn't season one. And, like, I think on some level that's fair. If it's coming from the same writer and it has the same title, Key, mm-hmm. it has the same title. Yes, it's an anthology, but it's the same show. I think you can expect a certain amount of of the same medicine, right? That's like you meet someone on Tinder and you're six weeks into having sex with them and you say, we're boyfriend, we're, we're boyfriends now, uh, girlfriends now. And she's like, uh, no, we're just fucking. Uh, that's on you. Like, if you got invested and okay. you didn't define yeah. your relationship and you got... But if she's the whole time, like, you know, like, oh, you're the, my, the one and I love you so much and I want to move in with you and talk yeah. about marriage and... Ba- and then she's like, no, we're just fucking. That's kind of on her, right? I feel like Pizzolatto... Pizzolatto's sure. this dude I met on Tinder who's been telling me, uh, yeah, it's all Cthulhu and there's <laughs> raven masks and there's there's Greek mythology and there's... Uh, this 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 sex scandal is preying on young trafficked European women with with children in danger and oh what what you expected some kind of occult stuff what the fuck's wrong with you psycho yeah like I got blue balls of the occult here what's <laughs> what's going on man yeah yeah I I honestly was expecting more 
occult stuff than we got in this one. Um, I don't know that it's a, a bad thing um, overall, but when you're expecting what you're expecting from season one, then it it it, it subverts your expectations for sure. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about, and I like for as much, you know, as much as I've said already that I didn't like about this episode, I think Ray's death was not necessarily pointless or or unnecessary, but I think it could have been handled a lot better. Like, if a man is trying to send a text message or an email or whatever, a voicemail to his son, mm-hmm. why is he driving out into the middle of buttfuck nowhere, hoping that his reception gets better? What the fuck are you doing? Just keep driving down the road where your 4G is going to be connected. Don't go out into the middle of the fucking forest. I think... One of the things, if you read also, between if the... you're being chased by eight guys in SUVs, don't go in the middle of the forest. <laughs> like, why is he out there? What is he doing? I, I, so, I think there's a little bit like, and again, this is me filling in the lines, but I think number one, him seeing the cops is to remind us that he's public enemy number one, and if he stays on the highways, he's going to be recognized because they've got his car and they've got his then, description and all that stuff. And okay. secondly. His sure. prime directive now is I want to get as far away from Annie as possible because if I can buy her, like if they don't get my cell phone and they can't pull my phone records and they can't triangulate cell things, as as much time as I can give her to get away from the coast and get away to this other country, yeah. every minute per, per, is the is the difference between them intercepting her at the docks or in, in U.S. waters and her getting yeah. away. Mm-hmm. So, but then he's got the tension. But he's of on I, a fucking highway system, man. Yeah. He could drive literally forever without ever having to get off on an exit. Yeah. Do a fucking loop. Do whatever you want. No, I felt- like, if he stops at the gas station, can they blow him away there? No. Uh, he could fill yeah, up his knows. fucking tank. Uh, no, that's the thing. They could. They could. Like like Holloway says in the train station, I can shoot you on sight. Then why haven't they called in backup and are stopping this man instead of chasing, instead of tailing him covertly? Well, because they want the documents back. Right. So if he's got that over them uh-huh. and there's there's no way that they can stop him and kill him without losing the documents and uh-huh. the evidence. Then why is he driving into the woods where they can do whatever they want? And he's going to lose reception to give yeah. his son this message. I mean, honestly, I, don't I think like that's, that I don't ties like into it. the dad's prophetic dream. Like Nick Pizzolatto was handcuffed. So he's fulfilling the prophecy? Like that's what he wants to do? No. Why does that make sense for Ray? No, I'm saying like the meta reason okay, is because okay. if he doesn't do that, then that's one le- uh, more dead plot line that went nowhere sure we would right now be saying what the what fuck the was with fuck that was conway twitty bullshit yes <laughs> yes so you're right i mean logistically it didn't make much sense for ray to drive into the middle of i nowhere. think there are a little bits it's one of those things where if you just analyze one aspect of like he's trying to lead him away from annie he's sure. trying to stay off the main roads he's trying to that it makes sense but if you look at it holistically it's like man it doesn't doesn't really hang together and I think, again, I think the, so. the yeah. meta reason is because Pizzolatto thought it would be cool <laughs> to have this Conway Twitty dad scene and a, a, a premonition of the death, and then it had to go down that way. But to me, it's like yeah. uh, that that him dying should have happened getting that girl out of the party in the groves, you know, in the Bohemian yeah. Grove. I, Not but a bad there idea. again, like that didn't really go anywhere or matter either. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to shit all over it because it's not by any stretch the worst show out there. Uh, it's and, one of the better shows, probably. And I'm but. going to be just as interested in season three as I, you know, like I 
when you know i i guess like an abomination of a trailer could turn me off of it but since yeah. it is an anthology and i do think that nick pizzolato has a real talent but he got the george lucas disease and maybe now HBO can come His back. Neck swelled up because HBO says they want him to come back and do another season. Yeah, he he grew out a beard and his neck just puffed out like uh, Boss Nass. Yep. Um, but I think if HBO comes back and says like, you know, Nick, we really like your work, and but we would like for you to work with some people that maybe could help you out, or um, you know, or maybe this is going to be a thing to like begins the end of Pizzolatto because I don't think if he takes these notes or if he doesn't mm. learn from that or if he doesn't the other thing is like maybe he needs this to go away for a couple of years like he can be his own critic and his own editor but you can't do it in nine months yeah maybe I I don't know like and I don't want to say the thing that is one like, problem with an author's but like I career think, is the death knell but you know, I, the other thing is I think that a lot of people like, oh, Corey Fukunaga deserve more credit in season one because of the look and how amazing it was and all that, which I think is also true. Mm-hmm. But I also think there might have been a little bit of the fact that this is the one director on the set with these actors every day, talking with them, workshopping things, going through, you know, getting involved in their process. I, there seemed to be Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson were – as much praiseworthy of Fukunaga's work as a director with them. Yeah. Like not just like the guy's good behind the glass mm-hmm. and man, he can catch a sunset and he makes these swamps look amazing. It's more of like the relationship they had with them and the trust that they had. Yeah. Uh, that I feel like that it didn't have to be Fukunaga, but another director that just does all eight episodes, they give it the, yes, the visual cohesion, but also that continuity with the actors so you can get consistent performances and all that stuff that that might have helped some of the stuff with the dialogue and some of the way that yeah. Vince approached certain scenes. Um, so it's tough to know, right? I mean, but but I, I do think that he does need to learn some more of this besides that the Internet's a mean place and I need to continue to work better on female characters. I mean, you either mm-hmm. need to take more time. You took a lifetime to write the first season. Yeah, that was very personal and pulled right out of your 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 very fabric of your being as the place you grew up in mm-hmm. this is something you feel strongly about these are characters that you connected with now you're trying to write a bunch of characters you're trying to write for a repressed gay man you're not a repressed gay man you're mm-hmm. trying to write for a woman that's a victim of sex abuse i'm assuming you're not a woman that's been a victim of sex abuse you're trying to write a bunch of stuff you don't know and also in record time and that doesn't didn't seem to work how could it work yeah yeah, I mean, th- that's that's the big difference, I think, is the time that he had to prepare these two seasons is so vastly different that you can't really expect the same result. And also... And especially with the ambitious nature of season two. And the fact that he it's took huge, more man. onto his own plate, like, th- and that seemed to be an objective. Yeah. I want more... I want to be... I, I want more of the credit for how awesome this stuff was. I can't run away from that <laughs> aspect of it. Like, yeah. and maybe that's a yeah. mistake. And I mean, it's it's inarguable that season two is a bigger production, right? I mean, the script the scripts are bigger. The the plot was the plot bigger, is bigger. More characters, more tendrils reaching out. And I, I think yeah, like four different conspiracies at one point. When you combine that with much much less time to develop this story, I think that's where you go afoul. I got some feedback. All right, let's hear it. Uh, we got the one that I wanted to spotlight on Andrew from North Dakota. 
So I want to respond to your notion a few weeks back about if and when we achieve a platinum age of television will be because of the auteur. I think True Detective is truly an example of where that can and will be difficult. Hmm. Television and film are endlessly collaborative processes. Even if a writer has a perfect script, the actors and production team need to be able to translate it. And since a perfect script is seldom to come by, you need people around to break through the sort of distortion field that a creative person, who can also be a personality wildcard, may have put up around themselves. Sure, too much studio interference can have its detriments, but on the whole, what needs to happen is a core storyteller surrounded by other brilliant minds, all fighting passionately for what they feel is best. And you hope the most passionately held stances are passionately held because that is the brilliant mind who knows it will work. True Detective Season 2 is one thing. The Star Wars prequels are the far side of the auteur scale gone wrong. I... Man, because uh, I've been the one, you know, I've, I've been saying this, you know, with the success of like Fargo um, mm-hmm. and the leftovers, which were kind of like, you know, Perota and um, Lindelof's deal. And with, uh, you know, Nick hitting out of park of season one that that, yes, like where Vince was good with a team of writers having one guy and, and one director just Fabergé egg this thing is the way to go. But it does seem like it can go pretty toxic. And again, this wasn't prequels. Yeah, I think it can. But that's the thing, like the prequels, like, you know, I grew up with you in the age of the prequels and we're like, how can this possibly be bad? Like, you know, worrying that like we would die in a freak accident before we'd see it or something like that, or that the end of the world would come before we get to see it. And (laughs) that was like a, a common fanboy thing. There was even a movie. Yeah. You know, uh, but it turns out that. Star Wars isn't awesome because it's Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is awesome because it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And and putting Star Wars on a name is no guarantee it's going to be awesome. True Detective mm-hmm. Season 1 wasn't awesome because it was True Detective. It was awesome because it really worked well together. And and that's the other thing is like that's not even a universally held standpoint. There's a lot of people that hated Season 1. There's people that don't like The Godfather. And there's uh, people that do like the prequels, so... Yeah, well, those people. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're eight years old when it came out, fine. Uh, um, but no, I, I feel like that that's the thing, that Pizzolatto thought that this was going to be awesome because it's me, and it's True Detective, and you've got me at the helm, and that's not a guarantee. And the internet thought it was going to be awesome because it's True Detective. So, like, and it, I mean, that, that I think, was the prevailing opinion going in like kind of before everybody saw the actors and started to go, Oh, I don't know about this Vince Vaughn guy. And I, I, I uh, do, I do feel like true detective has an identity crisis right now. Is it a gritty noir series? Is it just a true crime series that, you know, uh, well, not true crime, but just a crime series. Is it something with the cult? And doesn't it feel like an anthology needs something to hold it together? Like Spielberg's uh, amazing stories. Hmm always had something amazing about it. There was something supernatural or science fiction or, or fantastical. Or like horror anthologies have the theme of horror. Yeah, if you just have an <laughs> anthology that has nothing... T- I mean, isn't that... I'm? Those are different shows. Yeah. If they're different setting, different characters, also different themes, uh, yeah, I feel like those are different shows, even if they're titled the same. I mean, the definition of anthology doesn't imply that they all have to have a unifying theme, but most of the ones I'm aware of do, and I don't know... Going into season three, I don't really know what I'm getting with True Detective, and I feel like that's a problem. Yeah, it could be. Um, Going back to his auteur thing real quickly, um, you can also see places where that works, and maybe it's not so much that it's an auteur 
um, that it's a singular vision necessarily, but kind of that everybody's on the same page. Like I think about, so, so for stuff like The Godfather, yeah, you've got Coppola, who is deeply invested in this story, right? He has roots to Sicily. He has a heritage that goes back hundreds of years, and he understands this stuff, and he's passionate about it. But then you go to, like, um, kind of, like, comedy troops and, like, um, groups of friends who grow up in the industry making stuff together. Yeah. And that stuff seems to work, and when it works well, it's because they're all on the same page and they know what they're making, right? Mm. So I, I agree with him. Maybe it's not the auteur aspect, but it's it's the passion and kind of the understanding of what they're making. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, and I think, you know, guys like, I don't know, Vince Gilligan, he's probably really good at getting everybody in line with his vision, you know? But there again, Vince Gilligan, as we've come to appreciate, it's not Vince Gilligan, it's the Gilligan gang. Like, uh, the Villa Gang. It's yeah. it's Peter Gould and and all these you know George Master. What's his name? Master Esther. Oh God, I just butchered it. It's all these people like you know the, yeah. the, the cinema. It's all these people working together and trusting that they all have this insane passion for this project. Uh, and that's why they're able to re, you know come out with Better Call Saul, which is you know against all odds <laughs> satisfying and uh-huh. and entertaining in its own right. But it also has kind of like. It's of a piece with Breaking Bad, even though it's very different in its sensibilities and its its tone. And, and I feel the, like that same thing, like Monty Python. Yeah. Like Monty Python flick is a Monty Python flick. They're mm-hmm. all about, you know, one's about the Holy Grail and one's about Jesus Christ and one's a sketch comedy. But they all have a similar kind of feel and sensibility. Will Ferrell stuff with his crew. You sure. Know, yeah. Uh, ha- Say what you will about it. But. The, well, the same thing with like um, you know Happy Happy Madison production oh, with Adam uh-huh. Sandler. Like, yes, that's that is of a. <laughs> whereas again, I I don't know what the the Nick Pizzolatto brand is. Yeah, and the, the so with Breaking Bad in particular, that shows like decades in the making, right? When you look at not only the plot of it, where Vince Gilligan has had this idea in his head, but yeah, also the people that he's kind of gathered around him, yeah, have come from the other stuff he's done, sure. throughout his career, and he knows what these people are like. I he, worked with Brian Cranston in this one yeah. episode of The X Files. He would be the perfect Walter White. Let's bring him in. I, I know I like, Peter Gould. Yeah. I know we work well together. We've done some stuff on The X Files. Yeah, like, this person graduated from the same film schools as me, and I've heard a really good reputation. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you don't have kind of those types of people working on the set with you, maybe it doesn't work out as well. Mm. I don't know. This is all coming from people who've never been on a film set. So. No, you're just trying. You're <laughs> trying to say, you know, you're trying to understand as a fan why these pieces that all individually are good. Yeah. Uh, like I don't. There's not a lot that were bad ideas. It just didn't all hang together of a piece, and I feel like more development time. Again, maybe Nick doesn't need another guy in a room with him. He just needs more time in the room with himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, there's a lot of other things like Swamps of Louisiana, Fukunaga or not, are more visually interesting than <laughs> Endless Highways in, Cal- in, in California. I think so, yeah. Even the Redwoods, like, weren't as much of the fabric of this. I mean, that's an interest. That's interesting. Th- those were cool That's shots, a forest yeah. of indoor, man. Like, that's pretty cool stuff. But mm. it wasn't the bones of this season. It wasn't the very fabric, the, the scenery and all that stuff. So... I don't know. I I'm looking forward to season three. I, but it's also I'm a lot more skeptical. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it and hoping that it'll succeed. But I'm 
I, I feel like I'm a lot more nervous for it, especially if I find out it's coming out in July of next year. <laughs> yeah. And it's about the secret occult story of Mount Rushmore. <laughs> like if I hear that, I'm like mm-hmm. super nervous. Uh, finally, um, uh, after we've gone through and we've trashed the whole season and we talked about how worthless it is. If you found what we do interesting or in- insightful or it enhanced your enjoyment of True Detective or got you thinking about it more, we really would appreciate your support here at baldmove.com because essentially the vast majority of our budget derives entirely from listener support. Mm-hmm. Um, when we do get ads, it's nice. We didn't get any ads on, you know, it's, it's hard to get ads on a launch cast. So we kind of do this as a, a matter of faith because we're interested in the material and we hope it's interesting to you guys and you can help us out to keep making that stuff. You can make sure we get it three and a half years. We're, we're still chugging three and a half years down the line by going to baldmove.com slash shop and joining the club, which can be as little as a dollar a month. And you get access to a whole host of things. We do lunch with the Jim and Aaron. There's these little kind of unique video podcasts um, where we just talk about various issues. Um, yeah, mostly drinking and shooting the shit. Drink, shooting <laughs> shit. And we also open up the Q&A. So if there's something yeah. that you want us to talk about or ask, you've got instant feedback there. Uh, you get access to VIP sections of the forums. Mm. There's silent movie things we do where we... Uh, strip out the dialogue of a movie that the other one hasn't seen. We do a little quiz show based on it. We do live watches of television. We're going to be doing live watches for The Walking Dead coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, early early video access to our podcasts, our instant podcasts. Much ad-free podcasts, a ton of stuff you get. And primarily, you're also supporting us uh, making these podcasts. So check that out at uh, shop, or baldmove.com slash shop or club.baldmove.com if you want to see the pitch. Mm-hmm. And for all those that supported us, we really appreciate it. And the ones that are that have been sitting back thinking about it, maybe our coverage of season two will, will nudge you in that direction. Like you. In places deep with roots entwined, I live the life if you'd like to send in your feedback, you can do so by emailing it to truedetective at baldmove.com. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com and participate in our discussion forums. Keep up with our latest release schedules by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter. I live among you, well disguised.